G'day. Well, today I woke up on uh, the uh, Facebook uh, profiles. I, I logged in and I was seeing uh, what the latest updates and, and news were. And I discovered that the uh, Roman Catholic Archbishop of Brisbane, uh, Mark Coleridge, has announced that he's come down with COVID. And that's uh, really sad. And we pray for a speedy recovery for him. However, Mark Coleridge is somebody who mandated that all his employees, all Roman Catholic employees from cleaners and teachers to priests in the Archdiocese of Brisbane uh, be mandatorily stood down if they refused to be vaccinated. Mark Coleridge is someone who denied in a written letter, expressly acknowledged that, uh, that each of his employees, especially his um, ordained priests, had a, a right to conscience before God but he expressly denied them the right to exercise and obey their religiously, theologically informed um, consciences, telling them that it was only his conscience that mattered in this decision. Mm. And I know for a fact that many of his staff, many of his employees were stood down and much suffering was caused by this excessive and onerous burden of obedience to bureaucracy. And that is a travesty and an injustice. And the lesson here is that despite Mark Coleridge being dutifully obedient, wearing masks everywhere he goes and in every meeting he goes to, in getting every vaccination that's been offered to him by the bureaucracy, and by removing everybody as much as possible from his sphere of uh, physical interaction, who is unvaccinated, thereby uh, ostensibly meant to cause a, a greater level of protection for the people in the uh, Archdiocese of Brisbane, he has nonetheless still caught this virus. Hopefully, the lesson is that there is no way to avoid and actually eliminate an endemic respiratory vi virus. This is certainly the lesson which we should have known two years ago because it's never been done in world history but also that the right to question and disobey uh, political and debatable bureaucratic dictats is something that every Christian and every person with a conscience should be allowed to do. My name's Dave Pello, and this is Pello Talk. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Well, as I said, um, we're going to be talking about liberty of conscience today, a very, very important thing. And uh, joining me as uh, a regular now on Pello Talk is uh, Matthew Littlefield. Matthew, welcome to Pello Talk. Thanks for joining me again. No problem. It's good to be here, Dave. Now, Matthew has uh, written, along with uh, Tim Grant, a book called Defending Conscience, How Baptists Reminded the Church to Defy Tyranny. That book is due to be released uh, in a matter of weeks, uh, certainly this month, 
And uh, we will actually be doing a book launch here in Southeast Queensland uh, in Logan on the 4th of August. That'll be something that you really need to get along to. But Matthew Littlefield, Tim Grant, and uh, how many others were also the co-authors of the Ezekiel Declaration? Warren McKenzie. Warren McKenzie as well. So the three of them, Warren got left out of the book for some reason. Maybe he wasn't available. But uh, the, the Ezekiel Declaration uh, caused a great deal of, uh, well, it, it seemed to be common sense to me, but uh, caused a great deal of debate in Christendom and, and certainly among certain sections because there mm. are a section of, uh, I guess, normally credible and um, common sense people, including within and without Christianity, who um, debated exactly how much we should allow government and authority to dictate and overrule our bodily autonomy. Well, also joining me today on Pelo Talk is George Christensen. George, uh, welcome to Pelo Talk. Thanks very much, David. Uh, good to be here. So, Matt, I actually want you to start maybe with just a, a, a very brief, let's say a two-minute version of what the Ezekiel Declaration said and what the pushback and, and criticism of it was. So the Ezekiel Declaration, which was initiated by Tim, uh, he spoke to me and said, Matt, would you like to be a part of this? And then Warren came in a little bit later, was very simple, that people have the right to say no to a medical procedure, especially when it comes to gathering in church. Our main focus in the Ezekiel Declaration was on there shall be no segregation in the congregation. It's actually a sin to segregate the church. Uh, that's actually a sin. There's actually books of the Bible written about it, Galatians. James 2 talks about the same thing, about showing favoritism to certain people. The church is supposed to be a place where all who believe in Christ can gather freely unless they've been excommunicated because of grievous sin and saying no to a medical procedure is not grievous sin. So what it outlined was basically we will be, if, if mandates which say people cannot gather because of this come down, pastors will be forced into a crisis of conscience, but we weren't just writing about what was happening in the church we also recognized it was happening in the wider society as well and so we, we pointed out this shouldn't happen anywhere in fact the connection between no segregation in the church and no segregation in society is profound and it's really the church in history which has actually brought many of those teachings into the secular culture and so whether it's happening in the church or it's happening in society that's what we were seeking to address and at the end of the day to segregate in the church over a medical procedure is sin, and we couldn't do it. And so that's what we wrote. And we directed it to a Christian prime minister as well, who uh, uh, who was the, um, who the letter was addressed to. And um, I mean, that sounds unremarkable and sounds like uh, very easy to do. And obviously my biases are, I agree with your position. I, I think um, liberty of conscience and bodily autonomy is not a self-interest that we should fight for, but a love of neighbour that we should fight for. And, and that's a biblical imperative to rebuke oppressors and intervene in injustice. So what was the criticism, um, both incredible and plausible, even if you disagree with it? Okay, so uh, one of the main criticisms we got was the tone. <laughs> Which was hilarious because I had so many, I had people actually say to me privately and publicly, what was wrong with the tone of this letter? People read it and it was very, it was very just matter of fact, but they saw it as uh, too aggressive because we, we, we stated our position very strongly. 
Uh, so that was one criticism. And, and I put that criticism as in the to be ignored basket personally, because there's too much, uh, too much whinging about tone in public Christian discourse today. I mean, obviously tone is relevant in certain things and that's true, but there's too much of it today. Mm. Uh, another uh, criticism that was given is, is it was, we were presenting a radical right-wing libertarianism, which made me laugh because I'm not a libertarian. And if you read my public writings, whether my blog or on, on Facebook or wherever, I am very vocal in not being a libertarian at all. Uh, maybe I was for a very short period many years ago, but I'm not a libertarian. And I, I, don't, I'm, I don't think Tim is either. I, I'm not sure about Warren. But what we were writing from was not a radical libertarian perspective. We were writing from a traditional Christian teaching, mm. which is a distinctive of the Baptist church. It's actually a part of the Baptist, you know, every, every, every denomination has their distinctives, yeah. things which make up their corporate identity. Yeah. And liberty of conscience is one of those things for the Baptist church. Now, other churches do believe in liberty of conscience, the Pentecostal church, even Anglican churches and, and other churches have taken on this language now. But it was the early Baptist church and the Anabaptists which made this an actual distinctive aspect of what it meant to be in their denomination. It was a, an absence in church teaching at the time which catalyzed their reason for being. Yeah, it was very common at the time for people to be told, no, this is what you'll believe on this very detailed issue. And if you depart from this, you're going to the stake. <laughs> now, it didn't always get to that level. Often people just wouldn't talk about this sort of stuff to... But, uh, but that was quite a, a common and not unheard of example of what could happen. Yep. But what Baptist basically said is, hang on a sec, the Bible tells us a certain thing, and the most important for someone is that our conscience is right before God. Ergo, we're going to do what the Bible says. Now, every Christian would say the same thing, correct? Yes. Every Christian today would say the same thing, but not always. In the past, it was actually, now this is what the dogma of the church says. Yeah. Ergo, we have to favor this over what the Bible says. Or they might have said, okay, yeah, well, you believe the Bible says that, but we believe the Bible says this, therefore you have to do what we say. Just like that uh, archbishop you mentioned yes. in the beginning. Yeah, so yeah. we were not writing from a radical libertarian perspective. We were writing from a deep Christian theological perspective. And this is something which is a characteristic and distinctive of the Baptist church. In fact, we would have been neglecting our duty to not bring it up because it's an important part of our denomination. Yep. Yeah. George, um, how relevant do you think, uh, granting Matt said there is some relevance, but how important do you think it is to publicly dissent from another believer for the quality or, or caliber, quality or his tone? Well, I think that dissent on uh, anything but, um, uh, but the fundamentals, the dogma in Christian religion is uh, should be open. And uh, Archbishop Bathersby, uh, what he has done and what he continues to do flies in the face now of actually even what the Queensland government was doing, which was the worst or one of the worst uh, just after Victoria and WA for mandates. So... Um, you know, it's bizarre that he maintains this stance uh, because a church setting really isn't uh, a highly vulnerable setting. Um, and if you have a look at all the mandates that are ending in Queensland, in New South Wales, the Northern Territory and elsewhere, um, you know, we, we, can, we can show this equivalence to schools where mandates have ended uh, for teachers. Um, so why are they still there for churches? I'm going to say that um, uh, I may be getting off track here, 
David, but um, I, I was a member of the Anglican Church. And, um, yeah, was is the operative word there. Uh, I've left. I've left very quietly, uh, but I've still left. Uh, I have uh, always been on the Catholic end of the Anglican Church, the Anglo-Catholic end, are the ones that actually um, believe in the gospel, uh, that uh, believe in biblical teachings, that don't support things like same-sex marriage blessings and the like. Uh, the Anglican Church has gone down that track at its last synod. It uh, supported or actually didn't vote for a statement of belief on traditional marriage. Um, but that's actually not what tipped me over the edge. It would have tipped me over the edge, but what tipped me over the edge first uh, was the local diocese that I was in bringing in vaccine mandates. All priests, all ministers, all volunteers, all staff had to be double vaccinated, and uh, the church also brought in the provision for segregated services. And I just went, yeah, that's it. I'm just not going anymore. I'm not going. So I've left that church and uh, I'm now a member of another church, uh, the Anglican Catholic Church. How um, important, Matt, do you think liberty of conscience is not just to Christians and and the Christian duty to love your neighbour and intervene in injustice, but how important is the concept of liberty of conscience to all of Western civilization itself? Is it incidental or foundational? It's, it's foundational. I mean, it, it's not just foundational of the modern West. Uh, it, it's foundational of the early church's argument in Rome. I mean, it was guys like Tertullian. Uh, for those who are not aware who I'm referring to, Tertullian was an early uh, church father who wrote and apologetics for the church and, and teachings for the church. Just want to explain that because not everyone's going to know who Tertullian is. But the, the early church father Tertullian made it as one of the basis for for working against slavery, for working against you know in in Rome, a, a, a pagan master could do what they wanted to their slave's body. The church was like no. In fact, Constantine made a law in ancient Rome, ancient Rome, right, that you could not brand the face of a slave because they have the image of God. I mean, these teachings are not just religious uh, ivory tower discussions. They actually come down to basic principles, which we hold sacred in our Western society. William Wilberforce used similar arguments to advocate against slavery. Mm. Many of our modern human rights laws are based on the concepts of liberty of conscience. These principles came out of the scriptures and made Western society one of the most open and brilliant societies in the history, one that we loved. And we do still love, which has fallen a long way from its origin, origins now. But they, they have deep and, and, and strong ramifications for how we live as Australians and for how we live as Westerners. And so they are, in fact, John Locke, for example. I was about to ask you to bring him into it. <laughs> John Locke wrote his letter concerning uh, toleration. In fact, there's several letters, but his first one deals with the concept of liberty of conscience. And it talks about what it, what, what is the difference between the sword of the church and the sword of the state. The, the sword of the church is to discipline in religious matters and the sword of the state in secular matters. Things like murder, things like theft, the state deals with those. But the church's role is in spiritual matters and, in the, and, and, and Christians are going to have disagreement. So if you want to have peace amongst Christians, you need to have a degree of liberty of conscience. You might have heard of the religious wars of the past. 
these are not of these are not things of the past when you look at parts of the world like the middle east or north africa where they still don't have concepts like liberty of conscience dunknomics says uh, the libertarian non-aggression principle is completely compatible with christianity hence unsurprisingly people conflate the two um thanks for that comment duncan we're gonna actually have to get you on the show sometime i believe you're a, a brisbaneite hopefully not too far away but internet always works um good. your thoughts on libertarian non-aggression compatibility with christian liberty of conscience and john locke so the principle of non-aggression uh that you should the libertarian non-aggression principle i would agree does a lie yeah. in fact it would it would probably come out of some of John Locke's teachings, but I wouldn't say John Locke was a libertarian because, for example, he wasn't very libertarian in, in, in justifying taking the lands from the native Indians, yeah. um, which it was um, American. Um, Americans used some of John Locke's writings to be able to do that. So I wouldn't say he was a libertarian, but the, the concept of libertarian non-aggression principle, and tell me if I frame this wrong, Duncan, you can let us know in the comments, is, is just simply don't hurt someone. Don't initiate hurting with someone. Don't initiate aggression. Mm. Now, that's a very Christian principle. We have a right to self-defense. Exodus 22.22 gives people a right to defend their homes. But you don't want to initiate aggression. And that's a very wise principle. I would actually argue that overlaps with the concept of, of liberty of conscience and yeah. bodily autonomy. But it's not enough. It, because the Christian teaching goes even further and says something even more important. And that is that Christ owns the body. Therefore, slave master, keep your hands off it. Emperor, keep your hands off it. Governor, keep your hands off it. Premier, keep your hands off it. Yep. It's a sacred Archbishop, principle. keep Arch your hands off exactly it. Exactly correct. I want to uh, add to the stream now, uh, Alexandra Marshall. Uh, Ellie Melly, welcome to Pelo Talk. Thanks for uh, joining us. Um, tell me, what do you, do you identify as a libertarian, if, if anything? Uh, I'm sort of what you would call a libertarian when it comes to things like speech. Uh, definitely. I'm probably closer to a conservative when it comes to economics. So I do believe that we, we need a rules-based system, but I, I advocate for rules that interfere as little as possible uh, as far as governing a country. I think that the rules that uh, if they sh don't need to exist, they shouldn't. So that, that sort of lines up with uh, you know, Jonathan Subsham, the High Court judge from the UK who, who advocates that if there isn't a good solution or a generic solution from society on a personal dispute, then the, the rule shouldn't be there. It should be left up to individuals to determine what to do with that. So that's sort of my philosophy there, that if it doesn't have to be government interference, it shouldn't. Yep. Uh, and uh, your thoughts on, on what we've um, discussed so far? Is there, you've been listening for a little while. Any um, thought, reflections you want to make on, on things recently said? Uh, as far as uh, vaccination in the church, which I think is what we were talking about, if I caught it correctly, uh, they're using the same principle to enforce vaccination and morally justify it as they use with the rest of the population. That is, you not being vaccinated causes harm to others. That's the argument. And so if that argument isn't true, which we've seen patently it isn't, it isn't true, then there is no moral justification for what's being done in churches to start with. So it doesn't even become a question of libertarian values. It's a question of, well, the first principle is wrong. Um, it's more about moral posturing than anything else. Your can, thoughts I on jump, that? can I jump in, David, and just say, um, to get to the nub of it, uh, I understand from something that I saw this morning that um, India had just asked uh, one of the major manufacturers of a certain product uh, to do trials locally before it was approved. And, and 
and uh, I'm not sure for what particular subset or what particular um, cohort they were looking at uh, using this product on. But at the end of the day, the manufacturer pulled out. They said, no, we won't do that. So in other words, prove the safety and efficacy of your product to us in our country. Let us see the receipts uh, or we don't want it. And yeah. um, the manufacturer turned around and said, oh, well, we're not going to give it to you. Now, that speaks volumes. And, and you know, uh, particularly when we're talking about safety, and that is why these vaccine mandates, whether they're in churches, whether they're in schools, hospitals, police forces, uh, wherever they are, they are unethical and they shouldn't be allowed. And I'm going to tell you that I think outfits like the churches, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and others, and actually I said Archbishop Bathersby before, I should have said Archbishop Coleridge, who it is, uh, uh, but, but outfits like the churches and even BHP that have gone off on their own bat and actually implemented mandates on their workers without government diktat, they are going to be liable one day. When there is harm caused, as there has been, when there is harm caused, they are going to be liable. And I believe one day, if justice is served, we are going to have a court in this country rule that all of these people who have lost their jobs to these unethical, disgusting mandates should be reinstated and fully compensated for all losses. It has destroyed well, people's lives. That's why I'm so upset about it. Well, if we're not already skirting too close to invoking the wrath of the uh, Silicon Valley gods, uh, we're about to end this uh, recorded video right now. Uh, just a note, if you're watching this live, uh, then uh, you will not have to change channels. But if you're watching the recorded video, now is the right time to hang up from YouTube and Facebook and head over to goodsource.news, where the rest of this video will be remaining complete and uncensored in full. That's goodsource.news. So we can take the power away from Silicon Valley. Thanks for following us over to that website. Matt, you had some comments. Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, I, I, uh, it's part of my goal. Part of my, my current goal in life is to make sure that this doesn't become something which is given a half-hearted apology in 30 years by a prime minister who does, doesn't really care and wasn't really affected like many other public apologies that have been given but it happens in real time i agree with you completely george absolutely correct it's an ethical issue and ellie may you're absolutely correct that uh, you are spot on the fundamental truth which you've pointed out there is that they don't work so the moral argument the moral basis for the mandates is false but that doesn't go far enough because that's the kind of a thing you can only find out in hindsight. And so the importance of the fundamental principle of liberty of conscience is the government doesn't get to determine what you have to find out in hindsight in regards to your body. You get to determine that. And that's an important medical principle as well. In fact, the Australian Immunization Handbook makes reference to it. There have been famous examples in history where that was not given to people and then people were harmed by that. And I know people who have been harmed recently by the current mandates. I've got friends that still can't work in their profession. And so you're absolutely 100% correct on the moral principle of the argument. It just doesn't exist. I don't think it ever existed. I think the evidence was there very early that it wasn't going to work. Can I quantify that? Because, uh, sorry, I just jumped in, so I, I probably didn't finish it properly. I'm actually unvaccinated too, so I'm excluded from places I can't fly internationally. Uh, I wouldn't be able to work in most of my old uh, jobs, etc. 
Um, but what I meant with that moral argument is they're using the, the harm transference argument, which is what they used to use in biosecurity for people who were sick. So it's only supposed to apply to people who are currently sick and currently infectious who could pose a risk to others. It's not meant to be an enduring restriction based upon a vaccination status, for instance. So they've actually misappropriated the argument of harm transference from infected patients, which was actually regulated beforehand, into this yeah. potential harm that they can then interpret based upon being things like up to date. And that's a crucial change in the argument because it's it's taken it from what may be a one or two week period that you could be excluded from something to an indefinite exclusion from all of society, which is yeah. a, a very serious change. That's yeah. a very good point. Uh, George, you have just released today on your uh, Substack account, um, and everybody should follow George, subscribe and, and support the important research and, and speaking activism that he's doing uh, through the Substack amount, uh, account. It's a, a really great way to make sure you're getting quality information and to make sure uh, George is able to feed his family and sustain a, a living while continuing full-time in politics for us. But you've just released today a, uh, a video um, with uh, Professor Matthias Desmet from uh, University uh, in Europe um, talking uh, about the, the theory of mass formation. Now, I actually produced this interview for you, so I've watched it twice. And I have to say, it is some of the most informative uh, explanation yeah. of what's gone on this decade. Um, tell us about that interview and, and what people can expect to learn when they go and watch that. Yeah, thanks, David. And firstly, can I just say that I, I try to do a free weekly, well, I do do a free weekly edition of this newsletter that goes to everyone, and I put uh, the best of the best news and views in it. And I've got to say, uh, Ellie Melly's uh, spectator columns often end up in there. So uh, she is a top-notch writer and a top-notch analyst, and uh, I'm a big fan, so uh, it's good to be on here. We only you. have the best here, George. <laughs> Thank you, George. Good. <laughs> Mate, I, I, I loved, uh, I mean, not too many people are writing about it, but, but Ellie wrote about uh, the issue of falling birth rates and linked it to something that we can't talk about or we'll get off, uh, censored off Facebook on YouTube. No, no, we're, know, we're, what, um, we're censor free now. Go for okay, broke. To the, to the jab, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and she's right. Uh, but no one's talking about that. But look, let's get back to the question you've asked. Um, uh, I interviewed uh, Dr. Matthias Desmet uh, from the University of Ghent in Belgium. Now, uh, if the name's ringing a bell with some people, who he is is the guy who, uh, I guess, popularised the term uh, mass formation in terms of uh, how society, Western society in particular, responded to the pandemic, so-called pandemic. Um, now, uh, it was promoted heavily through Dr. Robert Malone, who a lot of us know, one of the, uh, uh, the researchers who um, was critical in, uh, in, in actually discovering mRNA vaccine technology. Um, but Dr. Desmond has uh, outlined, in, this is the second time I've interviewed him, actually, but in this interview, he outlines what mass formation is, where he thinks society is going. Uh, so he talks about where we've been, where we are now, where we're going. And his view is that we are in the slide to totalitarianism, a different type of totalitarianism. This is not the classical dictatorship. This is not a repeat of Nazi Germany. Uh, but nonetheless, there are still elements there. And I just want to read this section because people might think, oh, this is 
fanciful to think that we are sliding into totalitarianism. Uh, and I want to talk about that in a bit, a, a bit more detail, but I just want to go to one part of Desmet's book here, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, and just read it for you. He says, dictatorships are based on a primitive psychological mechanism, namely on the creation of a climate of fear amongst the population based on the brutal potential of the dictatorial regime. Totalitarianism, on the other hand, has its roots in the insidious psychological process of mass formation. Only a thorough analysis of this process enables us to understand the shocking behaviours of a totalitarized population including an exaggerated willingness of individuals to sacrifice their own personal interests out of solidarity with the collective, i.e. the masses, a profound intolerance of dissident voices and pronounced susceptibility to pseudo-scientific indoctrination and propaganda. And that summary there, obviously, is, 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 is imagery of over the last two years, as we'd lived through lockdowns uh, that were unjustified, as we'd lived through curfews that were unjustified, as we'd lived through mask mandates that are unjustified, as mm -hmm. we lived through vaccine mandates that are unjustified. And, and uh, what's particularly uh, noticeable is this profound intolerance of dissident voices. Um, you know, not only were uh, people in the street uh, disparaging people who disagreed with this narrative as so-called anti-vaccines, even though most of us uh, who were doing it had every single vaccine known to man in their bodies, <laughs> yeah. uh, apart from the latest. Um, uh, you know, but, but apparently we're all anti-vaxxers now. Um, but it went from that level through to a pregnant mother being arrested in front of her family for posting on Facebook. Uh, you know, now, I, I actually disagree a little bit with uh, Matthias Desmond, and I say that in the interview with him, because I ask him straight up, have we actually become a totalitarian society? And he says, no, I don't think so yet. Well, I think we bloody well are. I mean, this week, and I, I, I don't want to get off track, so I'm just going to be very quick on this. This week, PayPal uh, banned me from their platform. Why? Because I was actually soliciting some seed funding to set up a conservative news website. So I got deplatformed by a bank, not by a government. So mm. that's a different form of totalitarianism. Uh, when people are getting silenced, when people are getting deplatformed, when people are getting definanced because of their political views, what else do you call it other than totalitarianism? So, so yeah. it's it's soft, I admit that. And Rod Dreyer, who's a, another writer, has written two books, I've written many books, but two of them, The Benedict Option and um, Live Not By Lies, are compulsory reading for everyone, I would say. And particularly Live Not By Lies talks about this soft totalitarianism. We are living through it, ladies and gentlemen. And without people speaking out, as Dr. Desmet says, uh, it is only going to get worse, it's going to get harsher. And the shocking intolerance of dissident voices will end up in a very, very bad place. It always has. So George, the uh, onus the is on you. The onus is on us. Sorry, George. The classic definition of uh, totalitarianism, most people would probably understand to be something to do with government exercising control. 
um, PayPal is not an example of government. So do you have to have a different definition of uh, totalitarianism to use it as an example of totalitarianism? Um, well, no, I don't think you do because I think that it's being done with uh, with impunity and being done with uh, the approval of government. Let's have a look. I mean, PayPal is a finance provider, right? Um, now, now uh, think about the situation where a bank suddenly phones you up or sends you an email or a text message and says, uh, because you voted for, uh, I don't know, um, the Liberal Democrats at the last election or because you posted something on Facebook or tweeted something that we disagree with, we're cancelling your actual transactional services, your credit card and your FPOS um, or, or, or your mortgage. Um, also, you're going to pay us back in full. I mean, that would be outrageous to think that a bank could actually step in and cancel bank accounts or even just freeze them, except we've seen it in a Western democracy that's just like Australia. In Canada, the government said uh, to the banks, we want you to freeze these accounts of people that are supporting freedom protesters, the truckers in this freedom convoy, right. and the banks did. So yeah. um, mate, I think it is a different type of totalitarianism, but what we're seeing more and more is the enmeshing of left-wing globalist governments um, and uh, globalist think, um, corporations into I the think one explained, I think what you've explained uh, probably lends itself to the traditional or classic definition of totalitarianism uh, with the example of Can the I... Canadian truckers, you've uh, detailed an example of how they've followed the lead of, of government overreach and, and overbearing abuse of authority. Uh, but in the case for you, um, they might not have acted in, reacted to a government diktat, but they've certainly preempted uh, the 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 wielding of the exercise of of the status quo and and the entrenched orthodoxy. So it's probably not a stretch um, to follow up my question. Ellie, I think you were trying to jump in. Yeah, I was going to say totalitarianism was invented to describe totalitarian governments, i.e., socially controlled governments who took control of every aspect of people's lives, including their banking. Uh, but it is used uh, interchangeably with authoritarianism, and it's perfectly correct to describe. Uh, a banking regime like this as totalitarian because it's basically a descriptor of an activity rather than specifically government. Um, but I wrote an entire article about what exactly has happened to George Christensen here a couple of weeks ago, which is how banks have started acting as if they were moral police. And it started about 10 years ago with payment gateways who were not considered to be banks, even though they technically are. And they started deplatforming uh, controversial speakers without any way or, or of... Uh, you know, contradicting that or appealing that decision, they just started making arbitrary uh, ways of saying, we're not going to fund you, we're going to take money off you in this case. And that was part of, it's like the Twitter safety rules where they have these uh, community guidelines where they don't actually have to obey them, they don't have to explain them, they can just deplatform people if they feel like it. Well, banks have initiated that from their online platforms now into their physical brick and mortar banks. So We've actually seen brick and mortar banks, instead of pushing back against the errors of online banking, they're now bringing that into physical banks. So they were deplatforming um, some sex workers down in Victoria who had a legal business, but because the bank didn't like it, I think there were four banks who refused to give these people bank accounts, even though it's a legal business. Now, conservatives might not like that, but the principle is exactly the same. Banks are making moral judgments about who can and can't bank with them, even though criminals can bank with banks. So we've got to be very careful about where this is heading in the future. Yeah, such a good point. Criminals and, and overt lawbreakers 
mm. um, overtly immoral, wicked people where there's very little debate of their, yeah, it's ridiculous that they're not subject to this, um, just this overt act of controlling the narrative and people's, uh, you know, free exercise of conscience. Did you have something to add, Matt? Yeah, there is a term for it. It's corpocracy, a corporate autocracy. That's what we live in. We live in an era where society is now controlled by, not by government and not by corp, co the corporate world, it's, it's controlled by a combination of both. It's a revolving door corporacy. That's what my lefty friends would call it, at least. Corporacy. Can I say one more thing? Just quickly about this totalitarian, um, George called it soft totalitarianism, but I would argue that this idea we're going to live in a social credit control system where we're always being watched and we're always being judged and we have to smile at the right politicians and we don't have free choice over what we purchase or make or think or feel, that's its own kind of hell. And, and some might argue that that's even worse than what we've seen in totalitarian regimes in the past because never in history has an individual's thoughts been policed to the extent that, that we are now seeing happen in the world and I don't think people are ready for what this will really mean and, and what kind of lives we're going to be living under this new regime. Yeah, it's, it's not a soft totalitarianism for those who are already excluded, for those who cannot work. That's I mean, right. There is, George is right to a degree that it is soft, softer now, but you're, as we've all, we can all see, <laughs> and as you just pointed out, Ellie Mae, it's going to get worse. And, and the, the, the bounds within which you're going to be allowed to function in this corpocracy are going to get narrower and narrower. And as the, as the elite changes their mind over what's allowed, people, those of you who are allowed in it now are not going to be allowed in it then. There are people now who yeah. are sitting unemployed who did not think ever in their lives they were going to lose their jobs over a mandated medical procedure. And just a few years ago, people were warning, look, we're getting banned off PayPal. We're getting banned from banks for talking about political issues. You guys, if you don't step up now, what's going to happen in the future? And that's what we're living in. We're living in that right now. And it's getting worse. Yeah. And what it's called the... Make it... Oh, sorry, George, yeah? No, I was just going to say, so I want you to finish your point, but it's called the Great Reset. This is the uh, diffusion of... Uh, of authoritarian corporatism with authoritarian government that's that's exactly what the great reset is exactly correct and what it will take for this to change and for this to end is citizens doing their citizen duty which we still have the right and the ability to do now but it's a lot of people just aren't engaged aren't engaged enough and that's a real concern that is a real concern because i mean is it is it washington post or New York Times, it says democracy, um, what is it, what is the saying? Democracy fades, um, I can't, I, I, I've forgotten the saying. And democracy yeah. dies in darkness. <laughs> Pardon? Democracy, democracy dies in darkness, that's the that's WAPO's. Uh, but I've got to say that um, uh, those guys are the biggest uh, globalist pushes uh, that there are, so um, it will die under their watch. It's like Google saying, do not be evil, when you have to tell yourself that every day <laughs> you've got an issue. <laughs> and you know what? This, this or Jack Dorsey saying that we're the free speech party. <laughs> this slogan that democracy dies in darkness uh, assumes a premise that democracy is an infinite good, an absolute good that that cannot be corrupted uh, and is always better than all the alternatives. Uh, and and that's just not true because you can have benevolent dictators just as much as you can have malevolent democracies uh, when the majority of people are acting capriciously 
out of fear, uh, cowardice and self-interest, uh, democracy is not the greatest thing for the greatest number of people. It's, it, it, it's like asking nine unemployed people out of ten uh, voters to decide what government should do with uh, you know, welfare and benefits. They're, they're not always going to give you uh, the most objectively intellectual, um, uh, socially beneficial answer possible. Ellie? That, that is the, uh, the trap with the allure of authoritarian dictatorships. In history, every now and then, you get a good ruler who rules in an authoritarian fashion and drives a country forward into a golden age. But they are rare, extremely, extremely rare. And they are almost always followed up by a series of despots who destroy whatever was built previously. Yeah. Whereas democracies tend to be self-correcting. So even though they can, as you correctly display, uh, Dave, be self-interested and ruinous, they don't, those bad ideas tend to die. They get rejected eventually. And the democracy is able to self-correct itself by electing new leaders. But when you get authoritarians in charge and one authoritarian after the other, there is no mechanism by which this the, the country can correct itself. None. You have to hope and pray that you get uh, another benevolent dictator, which statistically is it's a one in a thousand. So you're almost going to be stuck with centuries of chaos. No, I don't that's know about one in a thousand. Would you, would you say that's a fair ratio? It's probably, it's it's probably worse ratio. than one in a thousand. It's a far higher ratio, and, and to some degree, I, I I don't disagree with what Ellie May is saying, but Ellie May, sorry, Beverly Ellie... Hillbillies. <laughs> sorry, oh my God, you guys! It's not hard. There's only like three letters in the name. Come on. Sorry, Alexander. I'll just call you Alexander. There we go. Then I won't get that wrong. Alexander May. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, what I was going to say is uh, the problem is the problem is in the past you had a much higher quality of electorate, and and the the ability for a democracy to revitalize itself depends on the quality of the people and historically speaking every democracy has fallen into despotism eventually that that is just a reality of history you go back to the ancient greeks um any form of democracy falls into despotism Ch uh, churchill himself said at the turn of the uh, 20th century yeah. he said the wars of democracies are going to make the wars of kings pale in comparison because of the inability for the people to forgive i don't uh, disagree i don't disagree with you there wars. yeah the only, reason that, <laughs> the only reason the American Republic works, uh, it's not because the Republican model works, because republics don't generally work. It's because America had an extremely strong uh, moral core and center that it taught its children, you know, we are the country of the free, and they, they held that closely, and that's what allowed their republic system to function correctly. It was the beliefs of the people. But now that the beliefs of the people are collapsing, we're seeing the Republican model of America collapsing just like all the other republics because there's less structure there to account or moderate what we're seeing the Democrats getting up to. Yes. So uh, Churchill also said it best, and that was that uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. So... Um, you know, I, I think that's right. There was a there was a comment before from uh, I think it was Mama who said democracy gets corrupted as a general level of morality plummets, and there's truth to that. Um, uh, but but then you need a great awakening, not a great reset. You need a great awakening to actually I mean, restore yeah. and, and uh, ethics and morality. 
Mm. And George, the entire point of having a constitution is to constrain the, the corruption of democracy to ensure that fundamental rights, so no matter how self-interested people get, there's supposed to be a limit to the amount of damage that they can do to individuals who have less power than them. And that's why, uh, yeah, that's why yeah. a constitution is so fundamental and why it's so destructive and damaging that we have this new culture where people are just starting to tear that apart because we're losing the protection that used to keep democracy above the level of a, a dictatorship. But this and is, as exactly, I've always said, uh, go on, go on, Dave. Th this is exactly the issue uh, with democracy. You know, for example, the, the people in this last election who campaigned and thought, if we're elected, we'll fix the constitution and that'll fix everything. Well, that's completely useless if the judges aren't conservative. If And I, I don't mean in a partisan sense, but I mean in a in in by nature and character sense. If they're not concerned or... Uh, yeah, if they're not concerned with faithfulness and integrity to the actual words and original intent of the constitution then you know having the best constitution in all of history and contemporary global um options is no defense ag against a, a poor judiciary who's activist and and immoral and of poor caliber and and, uh, and look, the, the only thing i want to emphasize and, and harp on right here is that uh, neither constitutions nor, nor parliamentary corruption, uh, nor you know judiciaries and, and democracy itself should never be a golden calf um, or considered as an infinite absolute good. Because no, no, there's no, there's no thing we're considering is a solution. The 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 status quo, the the average tide level of morality in the population will mean they will adapt to whatever context politically they're given, whether it's a, a monarchy, a dictatorship or a democracy, they will adapt and that will they'll just use the system to restore uh, the status quo and the culture to whatever level. That, and that's why I think what we're doing right now is, is critically important. There's no silver bullet. It's not a quick solution, but it's only by educating and renewing the morality and minds of the average voter and, and the average participator in society that we're going to have a chance of using the great tools of constitutions and and justice systems and uh, and democratic uh, systems of government to to achieve the best outcome possible for the most people alexander there's no cure for absolute corruption there's nothing there's no piece of paper there's no government system there's no dictator there's nothing that can stop a, an entirely corrupt set of people if the society loses its way entirely. Because at the end of the day, everything is bits of paper. Um, and you can see from the collapse of other countries around the world in history, that if people decide that they're going to start killing each other and destroying things and tearing down all the norms of society, they will. And nothing can stop them doing that. What we have to emphasize is a best practice to give ourselves the best possible tools yeah, and that means some basic protections of law, if we can manage it, some uh, rules to govern how our politicians behave in the hope that if there's enough hurdles, society gets enough time to re-correct itself before it falls up a cliff. Now, what we see is some government systems are better at stopping the tide of total anarchy than others. Um, our system in Australia has been one of the best in history of doing that. Others are really poor at it. Republics are extremely bad at stopping corruption and taking hold of a, of a government system and falling into dictatorship. Dictatorships by themselves, like China's communist dictatorship, are designed 
to encourage the corruption of the elite. So uh, all I'm saying is, yes, you're right, but at the end of the day, we have to accept that there is no way that you can enshrine protection for people. There is no way you can enshrine morality. That comes from education. All we can do is protect and encourage people to embrace systems that help us to uh, make that kind of society possible. Yep. Yeah, uh, Vishwa Mangawadi, uh, the Christian scholar, says if you educate the, uh, the children today, you win the culture in 20 years. Uh, he's, he's, he's written a lot. And he's an, he's an Indian man who's actually seen that happen in modern India and how the yeah. church is starting to win that nation. So and it, it comes down to education. And one of the things we need to educate people on is that in the future, whatever constitutions we write, there needs to be as many limitations on corporations as there are on governments. Because the constitutions we wrote in the past were written to limit totalitarian regimes which came from government power. That was the context when they were written. Exactly. Whereas we live, humans are all inherently uh, uh, sinful lawyers. We like to find ways around things. And, and so we, 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 we can only learn from the past. We can't always anticipate the future. But we've now learned that a corporation that's as big as, bigger than many governments can do just as much damage. So that's one thing we have to note when we educate our children. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Alexandra, I want to uh, come to the topic of Sri Lanka. Uh, and the complete failure of authoritarianism or, or government overreach in that nation. Uh, what they've done there is, is basically mandate uh, a, a faster than practical uh, conversion of uh, Sri Lankan agriculture to organic farming. Uh, and maybe the benefits of organic farming are debatable. There's certainly a, a globalist narrative that if we all switch to organic farming faster, then we will feed the world in, in famine. Um, and Sri Lanka has adopted this narrative and, and the government has uh, mandated something in an economy and an agricultural system that's actually quite fragile. And it's evidently, self-evidently uh, collapsed and self-imploded and the government ended up vandalising their nation's economy. Uh, and uh, this is all symbolic of a much larger thing. Now, you've written an article recently uh, about the equivalence of the way governments are acting to harm their own economies and their own people uh, to create uh, fix, uh, objects of fixation for anxiety in the general population, which comes back to uh, Matthias Desmond's theory of, of uh, mass formation. But uh, they're actually creating a need for themselves and increased powers for themselves. And you compared that to Munchausen's by proxy. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so there's an article that I'd like people to read which uh, addresses this. I've, I've said that basically uh, the UN, the EU and uh, the World Economic Forum and other global leaders have basically created a Munchausen's by proxy scenario where they've made the earth look sick so that they can profit from the uh, the condition that they've caused or pretended to cause. So the earth is not sick at all, but in pretending it can be, they've allowed themselves to justify authoritarian systems of government, uh, tens of trillions of dollars of asset re uh, assessment and money from the public. It's And it's also given all these bureaucracies a sense of purpose. So in the same way that COVID gave bureaucrats and politicians an elevated sense of self-worth and, and importance in society, 
this idea of a global apocalypse, which doesn't exist, has mm -hmm. given the bureaucracies that were losing power as the world stabilised, they've now got a new a new thing to do, a new reason to be there and to adhere to all the money that they're getting. Now, this is not a small amount of money. As I write in my article, it's literally tens of trillions of dollars a year that wow. they wish to appropriate from the public sector, the private sector, in order to mm -hmm. save the world. So I also wrote another article called The Great Reset uh, from Prince Charles, which is about, he details how they're taking money from the private sector and it's through things like these ESG rankings where they're going to start, uh, instead of using capitalism as a mechanism to decide whether a company has value or not, they're now using a moral standard, which includes just quietly deciding the race and gender breakdown of your workforce and judging a company's value based upon that. Just so you know, they're now ranking humans as a metric in company virtue. Um, <laughs> but this is all this is all about how to acquire funds with an excuse of apocalypse. Uh, and it has to be called out because, uh, like COVID, if the central premise is wrong, everything that falls from that is also wrong. And without it, their power structures collapse. So with Sri Lanka, they actually use this ESG value. They were trying to get to 100, which is the top marks. And in doing so, they ended uh, Sri Lanka's massive government subsidies on chemical fertilisers, which have a much higher yield than organic fertilisers. So once they got rid of them, they overnight destroyed their rice production, their tea production, coconut production and rubber production. So that was their feeding the population, which is more than 50% of it on rice and then their export markets. So they needed to buy in food with money they didn't have because they had nothing left to sell. Now, all political systems are extremely fragile. They're like living organisms. And every collectivist regime in history has tried to micromanage them from the top down and you can't do it because they don't react like a stable system. If you touch something over here, something unpredictable happens somewhere else. You have to go very gently in from the edges. But what they did is try to change overnight their food production and they're starving everyone. And in short order, society itself fell apart. Now, we are seeing this happen in other countries who are doing the exact same thing, taking on these green ideas of cutting carbon and in doing so, they're destroying significant pieces of their economy. Australia's no different. We are using the ESG system. We're about to start changing how we're allowed to farm. As a farmer, we're being sent notifications of our cattle production, of what we can can't, and can't use on our ground. They are going to do the same thing to Australia they did to Sri Lanka. And yes. uh, in, in Sri Lanka, we saw the Prime Minister calling an emergency oh. parliament to resign while the President you know, ran away to a boat. I mean, it's crazy how quickly this stuff yeah. um, collapses. It's almost immediate. Ellie, they're already doing it, can I say, in Australia. Um, you know, I come from North Queensland and uh, the sugar industry is uh, the backbone of North Queensland, one of the backbone industries of Queensland overall. And for a long time now, there's been a trend towards clamping down on the tools of farming that cane farmers use as part of their day-to-day -day, uh, farm work. And uh, it's all being done because of the Great Barrier Reef. And, um, uh, you know, I, I've even had farm activists that have suggested to me while I was a member of parliament that they were going to uh, one day uh, get all of their tractors and basically park them all on a bridge, all their harvesters and tractors and block off the Bruce Highway. And, uh, you know, I think that the time for that sort of action is right because this is it is only going to get worse. Uh, and there was someone 
an academic, of course, who's one of those uh, spin doctors or spivs that's behind all of the policies that we see that uh, drop out that ostensibly are about saving the reef when they're really not. They're, they're just about anti-development, anti-farming, uh, anti-humanity almost. And uh, uh, they said that the best outcome would be for all of these cane farms and grazing properties along the Queensland coast to basically be shut down for government to buy it back. So, so uh, this is the end goal of a lot of these people to uh, do away with these industries, uh, this sort of these livelihoods, and this kind of work that they deem as dirty and unethical. Well, it's not. Um, it, it, it's not. And I can tell you why it's not. I don't want to go down this track because it gets away from the topic. But in North Queensland, where they've used the Great Barrier Reef or harm to the Great Barrier Reef as the excuse for clamping down on the tools of farming, such as pesticides uh, and fertilisers and, and the like. What we've found is that uh, while the health of the Great Barrier Reef has increased, at the same time, the farmers have been scored badly on their land management practices. So, so that means that the land management practices that the state government thinks are affecting the Great Barrier Reef actually aren't affecting the Great Barrier Reef. They're not mm -hmm. bad because they don't have the deteriorating impact on the Great Barrier Reef. So, so, so it is happening in this country. It's happening in other countries. It's happening, obviously, in Holland at the moment, uh, where farmers are reacting to the issue of, of government telling them they've got to cull their herd. Um, yep. And, and uh, this also happened in Ireland. Uh, I think that we're going to see a lot more of the robust sort of anger from, from people who have everything to lose in third world countries. I think that Holland has been surprising to many people uh, because it is a first world country. It is a Western nation where there's been somewhat of an uprising. I mean, hell, they brought a tank uh, to the front line. Uh, these farmers aren't mucking around. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> Can I add, uh, these people who don't understand who might not live in the land about why farmers require these fertilizers or things like pesticides. I mean, organic sounds lovely if you're, and it's manageable if you're growing uh, food on your balcony or in a small backyard garden, you keep control of it. When we first moved to, a, we reclaimed our old family farm. So it was a, an historic farm that we bought back. Um, we, my grandfather planted corn because he used to grow it there. And uh, as soon as it grew up, we, we were there one night and we didn't use any pesticides or chemicals because we just, you know, planted the corn and thought it'll be fine. And we had three inches thick of yellow beetles across our entire house and windows because what? all the corn bugs came. So once you start growing food on a mass scale, it starts attracting things that you have to control. And mm -hmm. so if you don't, mm -hmm. like all this organic farming sounds like a great idea until you're faced with a field full of uh, beetles or bugs that are destroying the whole lot that you just don't see in smaller productions. And so when that happens to us, it's like, it's funny because, you know, we stay inside for a few days. But when that happens to a country like Sri Lanka, where they lose their entire food crop or they can't grow enough food for their people, it's catastrophic. It's why we invented these things in the first place yes. to make our farming more efficient and more successful. Mm -hmm. That's yep. exactly correct. Uh, I've tried to explain this to so many people that don't understand. They think that uh, mass level farming is some kind of conspiracy to poison us all. No, there are downsides to it. There's no doubt about that. And maybe uh, allergies and stuff come from some of the pesticides and stuff that Monsanto we have Monsanto is not an infinite good either. No, they're not. Exactly. There are downsides to mass farming, but the downside to not mass farming is mass starvations, famines.
which used to have. I mean, there were famines in the 19th century in the United States. There were, you know, there were famines uh, in in Europe for centuries. The yeah, famines, yeah. there are famines in Africa today where they don't have these practices. The uh, Paul, I just want to, I just want to just just quick quickly say, David, sorry, sorry. Um, famines that were happening uh, in the 20th century. And by the time he wrote the book, they were just about over because of uh, the Industrial Revolution and and global warming and, and mass farming. George, you wanted yeah. to jump in? I just want to say that uh, less people think that we're talking about uh, huge farming operations. We're not. Uh, most of the farmers, in fact, just about all the farmers in Sri Lanka, apart from the ones that recently have become farmers because big corporations are buying up farmland now in Sri Lanka. But, but most of the farmers that are out there protesting, protesting are very small subsistence farmers. I'm going to tell you that that's the case also in North Queensland. Most of the farmers up there are very, very small farmers. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, big corporates here. And but that, uh, that, they, they don't want they don't want small farmers, George. They yeah, want they, uh, they want they to want... sell all the small farmers off, get them off the land, yeah. and have large farmers because it's a nightmare to negotiate with tens of thousands of individual people who have you their own requirements. They want to negotiate with one or two big companies which they can bribe or pay off or do these sort of deals. It's the exact same pattern that happened to the retail industry where I've worked for you know 12 years. They wanted to get rid of all the small retailers, replace them with large corporate giants because they're easier to negotiate with. And governments hate, hate small businesses. They say they love them for election, but they hate us because we're a nightmare to negotiate. The most That's trusted true. institution that is that like at the top 12 institutions in America and asked which were the most trusted and I believe the top of the list was small businesses and, and least trusted were government media and big business and we understand why that is the case why yeah. is big business so mistrusted because they get in bed with the government and and yeah. screw over the average person so often in so yeah. many different ways but Holland even in Holland those um, laws which the farmers are reacting to uh, we're going to destroy the small to medium-sized farmers because they had to get rid of 30% of the nitrous oxygen right. from their farms, which means cutting down their their stock levels, and which means they can't make enough. Culling the herd. A lot of farms actually only make a very low margin. A lot of farmers don't make a profit. They make enough to keep going, and they do it because of the lifestyle. It's it's not a big money-making enterprise. And the legacy. Yes. And the uh, can we also say, crucially, with that point, this comes back to the World Economic Forum, who, by the way, are writing things like the ESG, uh, ESG things. They're not a passive observer. It's coming out of this collaboration of, of people. Um, people keep assuming that uh, it's a, they're, they're here to save the planet and it's all good for the planet. But if you look at what's happening in the Netherlands, for instance, they're going to lose a third of their beef market, a third overnight if they if they bring this thing in and the first thing the government says is that they're going to look at giving the contracts to these world economic forum partner chemical companies who grow bio food so instead right. of is so that they want to replace the meat that you were getting from farmland with meat grown in a lab which you know it might you might be able to argue that it's a step above eating bugs but barely right barely <laughs> uh, and so it's about corporate investment and money making schemes for these people who go and shake hands behind closed doors where there's no scrutiny at these forums and then they they lean on prime ministers and presidents to destroy their own country so that they can make a killing off it. And this has to stop. It has to come to an end. It does. Yeah. Well, Gilly, the day that uh, my Scotch Phillips stake is at stake is the day that I pick up a torch and pitchfork and uh, join those farmers. Uh, but I shouldn't make fun of it because it's, it's happening more than just farming, right? 
this is the the beginning of it. Um, this this ESG, uh, which is part of the Great Reset, part of the WEF push, this ESG uh, apparatus is just going to envelop everyone from all walks of life. And uh, you don't believe me? Um, well. Uh, have a look over in the US. Glenn Beck has done some terrific work on this issue. Uh, there are already things written into contracts and, and uh, statements that banks are putting out that are talking about uh, climate accounting for their customers. Uh, whether you've got a car loan, whether you've got a mortgage, whether you've got a business loan, um, the ESG principles are going into this as well. And so uh, just to slightly deviate for a second, there's a credit card, right? A credit card that's been developed that has your daily climate spend on it. And once you've hit that limit, you can't spend any more. Now, it's voluntary to go and get this credit card. I don't know who would do it, you know, at a bet, perhaps. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, uh, well, perhaps not. He's uh, got a lot of money to spend as the leader of the Greens, $350,000, I think. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, there's a, there's, a, there's a credit card with this daily climate limit on it. Now, if that exists and this ESG push continues, at what stage are banks going to suddenly look into our spending as their customers and say, we can't do that because it goes too far. I don't think that day is too far away. I think that we'll start seeing people decline for finance for, uh, you know, cars that aren't deemed to be uh, to be environmentally friendly. I think that day is probably going to come very swiftly. Uh, we're going to see more and more interference from banks in particular in our daily lives because of this ESG nonsense. And, and and look, just... you know, nothing, nothing shits me more than people who live in concrete jungles, in climate-controlled air conditioning, who the closest yeah. they get to nature is a walk around the footpath of the local zoo, if they're lucky, telling farmers how virtuous or non-virtuous their productions are, while they still expect to come home and have some slave deliver them Uber Eats. They can't even be bothered to walk down the local shop to buy their own food, let alone grow it. And these are the people who are now judging our corporations on their supposed virtue, while they're having no virtue of their own, no idea what they're talking about. And it's this ideology that is now driving the destruction of the very real agricultural system which everyone needs to eat. And unless they want to eat canned food from China for the rest of their lives, which is what's going to happen if they continue down this path, they have to wake up to themselves and understand that they don't understand, they don't know what is involved in farming. They that all this stuff coming out of Canberra is nothing but bureaucracy. And we have to stop ranking companies by moral principles and start mm. ranking companies by what they make and what they do for their customers, because that's the only honest way to do business and it provides the best results in business. And to your point before, Dave, about the conditions you place on democracies for corporations, well, what we're seeing now is a breakdown of regulations on things like social media who have formed these oligarchies and are abusing antitrust laws by yes. collaborating with each other to remove people from a dozen platforms at once or to create these, these speech laws that you can't say anything on any platform ever. They are acting like a pseudo-enforcement arm of government because we are not enforcing the laws that exist on them. The laws are there. The laws are good. We don't need new laws for social media. We need to use the laws Just that we have one. and enforce uh, them. I I think we do need new laws. I actually proposed a law which was um, the social media protecting Australians from censorship bill. 
I think that's the only way that we can deal with this. But um, anyway, yes. we can. Well, that's we, Section we 230. So to your, to your point, George, that law exists that, in Section 230. That, They're not supposed to be allowed to have an opinion on what third US, parties yes. are publishing. No, but like the, yeah. it, the laws are enacted where their servers are and their servers are in the US. So we can import that law into Australia. The, the law is good. It exists. Just take that law. But the problem is politicians like having power through social media, which they could not otherwise wield. And so they are not enforcing laws. And where is the external ability for citizens to tell them that they have to push those laws? Where, where's the trigger for that? That's what we're missing. Yes, corporacy. Well, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, it's been a great conversation. Thanks to everybody who's been watching and engaged. And thank you very much to our panel. If you want to stick around, we'll be able to uh, chat after we end the uh, the broadcast and the live stream. George Christensen, thank you very much for chatting. If you want to uh, catch up with George, head to nationfirst.substack.com and you'll be able to support George's work there. Uh, and if uh, you're not rich enough to afford um, the paltry sum of $10 a month, then uh, there's a free weekly newsletter which has the best of the best. So there's no need to miss out at all. George, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, David. And Alexandra Marshall, thank you for your comments. It's always fun having you on. You're a uh, very popular addition to the panel. Um, Ellie Melly on Twitter, when you're allowed to uh, use your account, uh, what's the best place to catch up with and, and support the work you do? Uh, please uh, like and subscribe to The Spectator. We have 10 issues for $10, or if you want the digital version, it's a month free. Uh, if you like, if you want to have news continue, if you want people to write for you and speak the truth, then you have to support your uh, media publications because there's not very many of us left, I'm telling you that now. So uh, come support us, uh, subscribe, and uh, we'll keep writing for you. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And uh, that's it from us here in the studio in Brisbane. I also wanted to thank Matt. We have to switch back to the widescreen. <laughs> Matt, thanks uh, so much. Where's the best place that um, people can uh, find the work, the writings of Matthew Littlefield? Uh, so I write at Colgen Pool uh, and also on my blog, which is Matt's Musings online, which you can check out. Uh, or you can check out my YouTube channel, The Base Christian History, uh, where I, uh, I, I just put based up... Based Christian History. Yeah, Base Christian History, uh, where I put up stuff uh, from Christian history or just sermons and stuff. But if you want to hear my writings, which uh, I publish every day on my blog or a few times a week on Colgen Pool. And, uh, of course, um, come along to um, the book launch of uh, Matthew's book, co-written with Tim Grant. Uh, DefendingConscience.com is where you'll be able to get those tickets, uh, but you'll be able to meet him, get his uh, signature on, on your copy. Uh, that's going to be the 4th of August, a Thursday night uh, in Homeview, uh, south of Brisbane. Um, so save that date. We will um, be live streaming that or at least recording it. Um, and uh, Pat Mercedes is actually agreed to be our, our keynote speaker, our feature headline uh, for the night, and uh, we're going to give him plenty of time to tell us all about what he thinks, and it's something that he's uh, a very popular and outspoken voice on, and that is uh, the proper place for liberty of conscience uh, and how the church should be a fierce advocate for that kind of uh, freedom. So really looking forward to hearing Pat Masidi speak at that. So that's um, tickets for that as well as pre-orders. If you're not available to come, you can get your tickets for the event or just pre-order your copy of Defending Conscience at defendingconscience.com. Uh, Looking forward to that. And, of course, thank you very much to those people who contribute $10 uh, a month or more 
to the good source. Um, any contribution of any amount is, is greatly valued and helps a lot uh, to keep us doing work like this. And uh, this is what we do full time. So it's fantastic. We need to grow a staff so we can support more independent voices, um, produce, edit and publish uh, their work uh, because uh, this is how we win the culture. And it is a war over the culture because as we've said throughout this show, constitutions are useless if there is uh, democratic immorality. Mm. Um, courts are useless if they are not committed to upholding the principles in the constitution. Uh, politicians are useless if the people who are voting for them uh, are not virtuous or ethical or concerned with uh, fundamental human rights. Um, these are absolutely important. And one of the most influential factors in guiding a society's future is the culture. And that is very largely informed by the voices in the media. So that's why we do what we do here at The Good Source. Thank you for watching. Thank you for your support. And uh, make sure you sign up to our newsletter, which uh, generally comes out weekly uh, at goodsource.news, where you can get all of our recent articles, podcasts and videos as well as become a supporter and sign up for the newsletter. That's at goodsource.news. And last minute tip, if you want to catch up with me, I'll be in Sydney this weekend, this Sunday, speaking at the Friedman Conference uh, with a couple of other people like Topher Field and Matt Wong from Discernible. And uh, looking forward to seeing you all wherever we see you at the book launch or Sydney at the Friedman Conference. Uh, but that's it for this episode. Thank you for watching and we will see you next week. Bye. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.